Okay, so we're back in the book of Revelation. We're looking at Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, if you're following along in the church Bibles, it's page 1032. Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the angels, the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth were, was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you want to keep that open if you're following along in a, in a Bible. And there is a sermon outline for you in the programs. We'll be talking about prayer this morning. Prayer. It's like the easiest thing to do, and yet for some, it's the hardest. It's easy talking to God, but how is it that God's children can sometimes hesitate? Like praying in public? No thank you, right? Well, prayer is this very strange practice. We can't help talking to our God, and yet sometimes we can go days or weeks without talking to God. It's so natural to do, and yet we can feel guilty, and so we don't do it. We want to do it, but we might be afraid of doing it because what we pray for might not happen. Maybe you have no issues with prayer, but these are struggles that people have, and how can we make sense of it? Well, it's a big topic, and we're not going to cover everything, but who would have thought that we could learn something about prayer from the book of Revelation? Yep. Um, we're back here. And yes, we've covered chapters 8 and 9 before in one go, but I think I might have just gone too quickly through that, so we're back at Revelation chapter 8. We'll give it another go. And as we'll see, prayer in the book of Revelation, as it is revealed to us, is an absolutely crucial weapon that we must wield as believers. Now, so as we look at the book of Revelation, let me try to recap really quickly, but at the, I'm going to risk this, risk this where I'm going to try to kill three birds with one stone, not just two. So my hope is that you might be intrigued even with that, and you'll keep listening, okay? Um, what I'm going to talk about is the structure of the book, and that will hopefully remind us of what we've covered, the content, and we'll even pick up an interpretation tip for the book. Those are the three birds, okay? Structure, content, and interpretation. Seven, it features large in the book of Revelation. Seven is this symbolic number of perfect divine completion. And so the book starts off with Revelation chapter one, a vision of Jesus, and then seven letters that Jesus writes to the different churches in Asia Minor. Okay, that's chapters 2 and 3, those letters. There's the structure for you in chapters 1 to 3. Jesus' vision, letters. The letters are written by Jesus to the church to motivate Christians to keep believing and following their Lord and Savior. 
because they're facing many challenges in the world as a church. Okay, that's the content. It's a word for all the churches, not just those specific seven named churches um, in Asia Minor. Okay, so that's the symbolic value. We're reading this. We read the letters, the seven letters, because it does still apply to us. There we go. Structure, content, interpretation. Let's try that again as we continue in this um, review. After, that three letter, after the seven letters, chapter 4 and 5, God gives John a vision of the heavenly throne room and what the future of the church will look like. See, we need to visualize the finish line for the church to get across it. But not only do we get a finish line, we, the throne room in heaven, that is like where God the Father and next to him is Jesus, the Son, the slain Lamb, and around him are the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, that's the control tower of the universe where God manages his creation and carries out his plan. And it's from that vantage point that the church will have explained to them the different challenges that they will face on the way. Steep hills to climb, ditches that they might fall into, and that is called the sinful, fallen world with God's judgment on it. And from that heavenly throne room at the center of the universe, Seven scrolls are unsealed by the slain Lamb of God, and it reveals the state of the world across all time, right up to the very end. Okay? If you remember, they were fir the first four seals were like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then the next, seals five and six, that gave us a picture of the persecuted church. And then it led to the final judgment, the heavenly destination in glory. We're going to come to look at seals 5 and 6 again so that we could understand what happens next, which are the seven trumpets. But we see some patterns. Structure-wise, the trumpets, they follow the same pattern as the seals. The first four describe the state of the world. We get in trumpets 5 and 6 a more um, personalized view of what spiritual warfare is like. And then, finally, the seventh trumpet is revealed. Four, two, and one. Okay, that's the pattern. We saw that with the seals. We'll see that with the trumpets. But another pattern emerges. What we see is that there are seals, there are trumpets, and they're in a cycle. With the seventh seal, it leads to seven trumpets. And then with the seventh trumpet, it leads to seven bowls. And with each series of seven... It reveals the history of the world to the very end. So that description that we're getting is repeated. One, two, three, four, five, six seals, seventh seal, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trumpets, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bowls. It's a cyclical pattern. They represent the things that are going to happen in the last days, which is the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. We're getting the whole story of the world three times with the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. It's cyclical. It's like a snowball rolling down a hill that gets bigger and bigger as it rolls. Why do we get a repeated history of the world? Because with each series of seven, these revelations, we get more explanation of what God is doing, how he is in control, and how he is helping the church. Okay, so the book structure of these three cycles, that affects the meaning and the interpretation. If we un don't understand the structure in terms of a cyclical pattern, how else can it be understood? That's where each series of sevens, seals, trumpets, bowls, are happening consecutively, one after another, in terms of a specific period of history. Now, if the book of Revelation moves in that way, like a, a linear um, way through time, then we're getting a non-repeated history of what's going on in the world. And if we think the book unfolds like that, then we would read the book as if it were a divine schedule. This is where we're on the lookout for signs that signal each new period of history. Are we in the period of the 
seals or the bowls or the trumpets, right? We think that revelation gives us this kind of code and predictive power. I want to say that the only date prediction that the book gives us is the clear and conclusive end. After that, we cannot be certain about how the signs might line up with what we see in history. See, we want to read Revelation like a movie script, not like a daily planner. It's giving us insight on the same story from different angles. So the view you're going to hear today is that the seven seals and then the trumpets, they do not occur sequentially, one after the other, but one series after the other, but are, is repeating itself. That's why it's a cycle. That's why at the end we see the heavenly end time glory. Structure, content, interpretation, all covered. I hope we'll see that the three interact today because this is a crucial transition from the, going from the seals completed to the trumpets. Now, we're going to deal with the trumpets, but in order to do that, we have to go back to the fifth seal. So first, our first point, now we're getting into it. God hears the prayers of the saints. Back to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we get the fifth seal. Look at Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, that's chapter 6. Chapter 7, we get the sixth seal, and this is the final end-time scene of glory in heaven with the 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. That's the fullness of all the covenant people of God. Old covenant, 12. New covenant people, 12 times 1,000. 1,000 is the number that the Bible uses to multiply and show that it's a massive multiplication. This is the multitude of the saints that we see with the sixth seal, worshiping God around the throne where the Lamb is there in the final end time scene of victory. That brings us to the text for today, Revelation 8, chapter 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The Lamb opens a seal and there's this eerie, silence. And we're wondering, what is 30 minutes? What does that signify? What's going on there? But before we get bogged down with the questions, basically what happens next? Verse 2, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now this is odd because they're given trumpets. They don't blow them just yet because what do we hear in the silence? The transition. Verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the, prayer of all the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So here we go. We're getting a picture of the prayers of the saints. It's rising up to God like the smoke that is burned from the incense at the golden altar. Smoke can only go in one direction. And so with that, the prayers, they go up to God. That's what the silence is for. It allows for God to hear the prayers of the saints. This is the emphasis that Revelation is trying to make. This moment is that God is attentive to what the um, saints pray. This does not mean that God is hard of hearing, right? So he has to tell everyone to hush so that he could hear the prayers. Please appreciate the literary artistry highlighting the significance of prayer. Eight, verse 3 says that the prayers of all the saints were brought to the golden altar. What were those prayers? It was something along the lines of the fifth seal that we saw of the martyred souls. Remember that. 6-9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. 
They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How do we know those were the prayers that were brought up to God? Well, at the very least, the fifth seal prayer, that's the closest specific prayer that we've come across so far. And it's at the altar, so that gets us into the ballpark of the prayers of the saints. In fact, it sharpens the focus. Under the altar, we're getting the right perspective, the voice of the martyrs. We have to stop for a moment and think about the martyrs their experience, because their perspective will help us to understand what kind of prayers are being brought up to God. You know, martyrdom is like the clearest, the greatest, and the cruelest injustice that a Christian can face. It's an injustice that some Christians are willingly able to endure. They're voluntarily going through it. It's this double whammy that makes the prayers of the saint martyrs so significant to be heard. Injustice and intentionally being willing to bear the injustice. That's hard for us to think about, to imagine that we have to just take injustice. But surely these are among the prayers that God hears. Yes. These, as well as many other prayers that the living saints of the church make, but those prayers are all going to be similar in that it's dealing with injustice, fighting for justice. And I say that because the word justice in the New Testament is the same word as righteousness. From God's perspective, he's, he's wanting the, the saints to live for righteousness. There is a saying, power, it makes gods, virtue, it makes martyrs. The martyrs are the one, ones who understand what God wants for them. And that's a righteous, holy, godly, faithful life. That matters more to these Christians than even their own lives itself. What can matter more to me than me? We might wonder. The martyrs have the answer. And what they're doing is just taking Jesus' words seriously to the fullest extent. What did Jesus teach his disciples? The Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what's God's will? What's the Lord's will? Jesus, what did he teach his disciples? He taught them the Lord's Prayer and during the Sermon on the Mount, what else did he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? His righteousness. The Lamb of God was slain to do the Father's will so that the church could live the life that God called them to live, which is a life of righteousness. Here on earth, not later in heaven. Those were the kinds of prayers that the saints were being, being, that were being made up to God. Now, does that mean, based on what I've just said, that we all have to become martyrs? Does that mean we have to pray that we would die for Christ so that he would hear our prayers? No. It's prior to that, that we would be praying in the categories that Christ died for, which is righteousness and sin. Right? So our prayers... The prayers, the goal of our prayers is not so that we could die physically. We're not saying, help me to die. We're saying, help me to pursue righteousness. And then that might lead us to moments where we might feel uncomfortable. It might lead us to situations that might threaten our lives. But in our country, that's not common. And so it might lead us to want to become missionaries. Or it might just lead us to become gung-ho servants for the Lord. We do not have to pray that our lives would be threatened or that we would physically die. But what are your prayers like? Is heavenly seeing? Seeing it, this text, it puts into sharp focus what our prayers are like or not like. And in that way, it's a helpful word about what our prayers could be like, ought to be like. 
We can pray anything. We can ask for anything from God. He hears them all. But I don't think I really need to work hard to convince you that we could all probably grow in praying for righteousness. The saints, they live for righteousness, and among the saints are the martyrs who have the unique opportunity to die for righteousness. But God hears our prayers. First point. Second, second point, God sovereignly answers prayers for righteousness. Verse 3 again. There the prayers of all the saints go up to God. God hears. We can know that he hears because with the prayers, they're brought together with the golden incense. They're brought to the golden altar. The incense is burned. That's the fire of the Holy Spirit. And they're purified and they're lifted up to God. God loves to hear from his children. He loves to hear all kinds of prayers. He knows what you desire, what you need, what your hearts are like, and he refines our prayers. See, we're all on the journey of seeking to do the Lord's will. Even the holiest ones among us, the ones who appear to be holy, we're all struggling to, to pray, may your will be done, not mine. And so what we're seeing here in this scene is that God hears prayers, he refines them, he answers them to the point, and we need to see that he answers them to, to the point that we see that he is actually working with our prayers. God really works with our prayers. Why? What happens next? Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, he filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. You know what word is important in that verse? The start of verse 5. Then. After the prayers were made and purified, what did God do? Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. God answering prayers. And how he answers them are with peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, earthquake. These are expressions of God's judgments. That's the seventh seal, and that brings us to the trumpets. Symbols signaling that God is acting in response to our prayers. Verses 4 and 5, prayer like smoke, it rises up. And then what comes down? Judgments like thunder and lightning. And that squares with what the living saints are, um, are trying to live for, righteousness. What the martyrs' prayers under the altar are. How long, O oh Lord, until you will judge and avenge our blood and deal with unrighteousness? Okay, that's the scene. Now, there are two things that we can take away from this. First, prayer is powerful. You know, how did the early church actually survive? Make it through Roman persecution, pressures from pagans. How did they preserve this gospel message, this unbelievable word, pass it on to the next generations to the point that we have well, the church today? According to Pastor Eugene Peterson, he writes, they had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have mental breakdowns? Why didn't they cut and run? They prayed. He goes on. The prayers which had ascended, unremarked by the journalists of the day, they returned with immense force. In George Herbert's phrase, as reversed thunder, prayer re-enters History with incalculable effects. Our earth is shaken daily by it. Prayer, as the poet George Herbert described it, it is reverse thunder. What we say, it goes up to God like thunder. And what comes down? Thunder and lightning. See, God will uphold his glory. And what delight it brings him when it is requested by his people. Maintain righteousness, O oh Lord. Don't let unrighteousness tarnish your fame. Those kind of prayers, God gladly obliges. Prayer is powerful. But secondly, 
prayer is mysterious. There is this mystery to prayer. Our prayers make a difference, but we don't understand just how. And what do we do instead? We don't pray. So often it's hard to believe that our prayers will make any kind of difference. And then we hear things about like the power of prayer. So we get confused, like why do we have to pray if God's going to do everything? He's going to do his will, whatever, even if I don't want him to, right? You know, in asking these types of questions, you could ask because maybe you're just not familiar what it means to have a relationship with the living God. But if you are familiar with him and you're still asking these kinds of questions, well, then it's probably because your will is up against God's will and you're wrestling with him. You don't want to be bitter and give in and say, don't bother. So you timidly question what's going on instead. You're faithful. You still pray. You're just a little hesitant now. You're fearful of disappointment. This is a very common concern. And so what advice do I have for you as a pastor, for those of you who are in this predicament? Let me say, it really is a mystery, so I have no simple answers, but I, I can say some things confidently. First thing that I'll say is this. Don't stop praying. Don't stop calling out to your loving Heavenly Father. He may not be answering you in the way you want, but he is not some distant, heartless deity. To remind ourselves of this, when we pray, maybe we could open our prayers by saying, Dear, loving, Heavenly Father, and actually meaning it. The second thing that I'll say is that part of this wrestling that we do with God in prayer, that's praying for your heart's desires, but we could also be praying for God's heart's desires. If I can put it simply, love what God loves and hate what God hates. I mean, isn't that how we keep God from becoming this cosmic vending machine, just gimme, gimme, gimme? We start to actually even say, okay, what do you want, God? If we care about God, then we'll pray for his kingdom and what? His righteousness. In fact, if we're really sincere about like, thinking through this, then not only will we pray for his righteousness, we'll even be praying for what is unrighteousness. That God would deal with that. That he would grant us righteousness and that he would deal with unrighteousness. That is the martyr's prayer. Revelation 5.10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you avenge, judge and avenge the blood of those who dwell on the earth? See, when, when we read a prayer like that, when we hear a prayer like that, we don't need to be alarmed. Because the martyr's prayer, this is not a prayer for vengeance, as in some bloodthirsty pride that they need to get payback their pound of flesh. They can pray this because they care about God's righteousness. It's to the point that they even gave up their lives for it. They'd rather do that than seek out vengeance sinfully. So they're proving that they care about God's righteousness and that God would deal with injustice, what is clear injustice. So the martyr's prayer, it's not a prayer for um, that are bitter or hateful against the persecutor, but because they hate unrighteousness. Pray that God deals with unrighteousness. That's how you press home your prayer. And that prayer what, which says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Okay, so that's the scene from the seventh seal. Now we go to the trumpets. This is a transition, and this is significant. We're starting over again. We're getting a picture of what life is like in God's world, specifically what God does to deal with unrighteousness. Our final point, God deals with unrighteousness through creation. So we're going to look at the trumpets now. Remember the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? We get four, four trumpets. It has the same explanatory power of, of the world under God's judgment. Now, when you can look at it that way, then explaining the trumpets, as crazy as it all sounds, it is kind of straightforward. We're just seeing what the world is like. Look at verse 6. 
Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Now, at this point, your head's dizzy, you're trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sense of this? How are we to understand this? How literal are we supposed to get? How, how are we supposed to see those signs in, in society today? Well, I want to bring to our, your attention this Bible interpretation method called simplistic spirituality. This is where we say, I'm just a humble Christian. I'm not educated like those scholars. And I, it's just all complicated. And so I'm just going to go with a simple interpretation and look at what's going on in the world. That's what I see here in the Bible. That explains it. Done. Let me say that you can still be humble and very faithful and believe that the trumpets that are unleashed, these four, that they're symbolic. And to know that they're symbolic, well, it's because we recognize that they're referring to the plagues in the Exodus during, in Egypt, right? It's possible to believe that what we see here in Revelation is symbolic trying to give us a deeper meaning about what God is doing, but that back in the Exodus, those plagues were literal. Then and there, God was establishing that he can control nature as a form of judgment. Okay, And so, God's doing something in the world. You want to know what it is? Read the book of Revelation. He tells us here, we don't understand it, so what do we do? What we need to do is refer back to where he's done it before, where this all sounds familiar. How do we decipher the symbolism that's going on in this first trumpet? The Bible's prior use. That's how we do it. See, that background serves as the foundation for being sensitive to this genre, this style of writing, which is called apocalyptic, which is highly symbolic. Therefore, these are not literal effects that we're going to see in the world today where we can identify them specifically as in what's going on with this first trumpet is what is happening today in the world, and so now we can date ourselves in the book of Revelation. That's not how it's working. Having said that, how do we understand what this first trumpet means? Simply, it is God's judgment depicting environmental hardship. Okay. The first trumpet is announcing God's judgment by depicting environmental, ecological hardship. A third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees, all the green grass. We don't have to expect a time when there's going to be no more green grass in the world. This is saying that the world is under God's judgment. So if I could put it simply... And not simplistically, simply, this is a picture of God cursing the ground, what happened way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now we're just getting different de details brought out for us. So hail, fire, blood, all that's thrown down. What is that? It's an expression, God demonstrating that he is the active agent in the fallenness of this creation putting it under his judgment. That's what it means. See, now, we've got to cover that kind of ground first before then we can say, okay, what does it look like for us today? And we can see examples. Let me just give you an example, and let's work through that. The Amazon is called the lungs of planet Earth, and now it's being deforested at an alarming rate, and what it, it's all done out of greedy exploitation. Should we be surprised at that? We shouldn't. It is sinful. It is detrimental to our future. God in his judgment is allowing that to happen. That's the judgment that God makes. He lets the people do their sinful things, so he can, and he leaves us with the consequences. But, that, but the Amazon predicament, right? That is not meant to be uh, the sign of the first trumpet. It's an example of, but we've seen these kind of examples throughout history. Look at the environmental impact of the Industrial Revolution. 
Which one are we going to go with? Which sign fits? That's not how it's meant to be understood. The point is, this is what it's been like since Genesis chapter 3, and God's hand has been in it. It's God's response to mankind's rebellion. That's why when we're trying to work out what is a third, what does it mean that a third of the earth is burned up? It's not a literal one-third of the earth. What it's symbolizing is that God's judgment is not total and final, but it is partial and limited according to God's measured response. I hope that that explanation helps to understand this, this wacky first trumpet. Let's see it again with the next trumpet. The second trumpet signals economic hardship. Verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Do we realize that catastrophic events can affect and disrupt food supply chains? Because that's what this picture is depicting for us. This mountain thrown in the sea, that's like earthquakes or other meteorological events like um, weather events like El Nino, anything like that that impacts the environment and then subsequently crops and harvests. And there's a ripple effect. It can even affect transportation and global supply chain. That's what's being hinted at by a third of the ships being destroyed. God affects the environment to the point that commerce can be affected as well, disrupted. As complex and as global as our economy is, there's a lot of exploitation and greed and corruption and sin, and God's bringing judgment on that. He's allowing it to happen. And the fact that only a third of the environment is affected and not more, like a half, man, those effects would be devastating on our economy. But Lord, the Lord is restraining evil as well from doing more damage. That's what the third also symbolizes. His hand is in it. He's affecting it, but it's not total. He's limiting the damage. All right, I hope that, again, we can work with that explanation. The third trumpet, it signals existential hardship. Look at verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. These kind of uh, environmental meteorological disturbances, they affect even vital water supplies. And bitter water, does that sound familiar? Again, that's from the Exodus. God's people panicked because there was no water in, in the wilderness, and they grumbled against Moses. And God, in his mercy and kindness, gave them water. But there was also judgment. That grumbling heart invited judgment as well. You know, I'm betting some of us right now, we're hearing these explanations, and you're thinking, man, God's such a mean and angry God. He's bringing all this judgment and suffering on the world. Some of us might even have that common objection that we're still thinking about, holding on to perhaps. I would never believe in a God who does this to his people. No, we need to hear something clearly. God is allowing all this to happen where it is people harming people in their sin. God's allowing it, but he's also limiting it. And he acts and allows flourishing to still occur while people are shaking their fists at God. They're denying his rightful place as creator and owner of all things. What they're thinking instead is, no, I'm, I'm in the right, and I'm going to judge God. No, God judges unrighteousness through the creation to show that man is not in control that God is, that he is God. In fact, sometimes God allows what is in mankind's control to happen. Let me give you a, let me give you a local example. 
You know the Hatter in Alice in Wonderland? Why is he called the Mad Hatter? Well, it's because felt hats were made from animal skins that were treated with mercury, which, can, which affected and poisoned the workers, and it led to all kinds of mental problems. And more specifically and local to us, Danbury, Connecticut, the late 19th century, turn of the century, Danbury, Connecticut was the hat capital of the world. And they used mercury from the hat factories and they let it go, they discarded it into the rivers. And that was the water supply for our fellow Connecticuters, the nutmeggers, right? And it led to a health condition, mental health conditions, all kinds. It's called the Danbury Shakes. It was an existential hardship for that generation of people. And that's just one example of many that abound in human history. Problems caused by ignorance, negligence, no doubt greed. Just a small example of God letting people go according to their foolish consequences. Existential problems. All right, so God's judgments. God is working with the Hebrew categories of creation, which covers land, air, and sea. We've covered land and sea, so what's left? The fourth trumpet, Revelation 8.12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Again, we want to first look to the Bible to make sense of this. This reminds us again of the plagues in Egypt, the ninth plague in the Exodus, before that final plague, the clinching plague. And then we also see from Jesus, his own crucifixion. There was darkness that came over the day. At midday, that was an expression of God's judgment. What does this kind of expression look like in today's terms? I was able to give you examples and explain it for the other trumpets. But for this, I have no example, no explanation. I do not know. But what we're meant to take away from all of these trumpets is that nothing in creation is outside of God's control and everything is used for his purposes. We're not covering the science here, what's going on, what could possibly be happening because it's not a scientific explanation. The question is not how, but who and why. This is God's explanation for why the world is the way it is, fallen into sinful rejection of God, inviting his judgment. And we get it all from different perspectives. For example, Paul, in Romans 8.20, this is what he says. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This is God's doing. Now, people might just be looking out into the world and seeing all the catastrophic events, all the weather-related stuff, all the breakdown of nature and its destruction, and we just think it's natural. Well, there's a new sound that's heard. And this is to signal with, with clarity that God is at work. We get a new sound, screeching eagle, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Three woes, three remaining trumpets, five, six, and then seven. We'll consider them in the coming weeks. But I hope you can see that the trumpets are like the seals, where the first four are packaged together to give us a history of the world. The next two, we'll see, that are revealed um, are more personalized. And then the final seventh trumpet blast. There we go. So to draw it to a close, let's, what have we seen and then how do we apply it? From the trumpet blasts, God's judgment is being announced against unrighteousness. That is in response to the prayers of the saints. 
See, it takes acts of nature on that kind of scale to deal with sinful rebellion. God's existence, it ought to be evident from the majesty of creation, but if not, from the destructive power of creation. We can't get away from that double-edged sword. It's beautiful, and yet God uses it even for destruction. So with that, application. I've said it, very simple. Love God, love what God loves, hate what God hates. Love righteousness, hate unrighteousness. I think that really ought to make perfect sense on one hand, but on the other hand, some of us might have an objection to that, specifically when it comes to hating unrighteousness. What's the objection? Maybe you never really uh, wanted to pray about God judging unrighteousness. You might hesitate to do that. You feel a little uncomfortable. You might feel like a hypocrite. Maybe you don't want to appear self-righteous. Or you're just positive. You're not a condemner. But you know, far worse than that is this dynamic that we've seen in the text. Because the text is saying, pray that God would judge unrighteousness. And then what does he do? He brings down all these calamities on the world. All in answer, is it to my prayers? As much as, you know, I might realize I need to pray for unrighteousness, I would never want to pray that kind of prayer, right? Where God would just bring judgment on people. Famine, hardships. No, that's not what we're praying for. We need to be free from this burdensome thought that if I pray to God to deal with unrighteousness, that he's going to bring destruction on people. I'm not wanting that. What what we want is that for God to deal with unrighteousness in the way that he would see fit, that we would have to just trust him on that. Because it's not our business to to tell God what is righteous and what is unrighteous, to tell him how many people he should judge and in what manner. At the same time, we should never bear the guilt that my prayers brought on some kind of devastation, whether it's Hurricane Ian, or even the pandemic. No, it is God is sovereignly working out his plan. It's all under his control, according to his own righteousness and justice. That's what the chapter is showing us. But folks, we have to realize this. We're not in Kansas anymore. Right? You know, that's where we think of reality as some idyllic, innocent, childhood-like dream. It's not about us. We don't have the luxury to think in some idealistic way where humanity will make progress and we can attain world peace. Our faith makes it clear that that's not going to happen. The book of Revelation is trying to get that message through to us and hopefully it will even be reflected in our prayers. Praying against unrighteousness, injustice, That might bring us some discomfort, but it could also be a real concrete expression that I'm actually caring more about God's will than my own. Name unrighteousness in your prayers. And then second, love righteousness and pray for it. You know, praying against unrighteousness and praying for righteousness, those are two sides of the same coin. And what is that coin? Well, it's that God and his character and his glory would be preserved and honored. And if that's what we care about, we all have to get used to the reality that God's glory and honor and power will include his ability to judge evil and unrighteousness. God hates unrighteousness. He loves righteousness. Where do we see that most clearly? God hates unrighteousness so much that he would deal with it. And he would deal with it in the only way possible, which is righteously. For us, we can say we hate unrighteousness, and sometimes it can show in some really kind of hard ways where we're unrighteous, where we're condescending, if we're not careful. No, God would hate unrighteousness. He calls it out. He brings on expressions of judgment to try to get us to repent. 
But ultimately, the four trumpets, what we see in our passage today, they're being blown because evil and wickedness are that bad, so bad that God would spare the creation, the final judgment, and he poured out his wrath on his son. See, at the cross, that's where love and wrath meet. And so the loving act of mercy that God shows us is that even the wicked can return to God and find forgiveness. That's how much God cares about righteousness. He would call all to turn back to him through the glorious cross of Christ where we are declared forgiven and we're even declared righteous. That would be the first righteous thing for anyone to do. Turn back to God by turning to the way that God had made for people to turn back, which is through the Son. Turn to Jesus. If you turn to him, he'll answer that prayer. And if we have turned to Christ, then that's how much more we understand God our creator. We know what it means that he hates unrighteousness, that he loves righteousness as we look to his son, our dear Lord Jesus. May that give us a fresh view of that familiar cross. And with that, so pursue righteousness. May those prayers thunder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to know who you are through your word, even this word. It invites us to pray, and it gives us sight to who you are, O oh God. Glorious and majestic as the creator of all. Loving and, yes, even wrathful in salvation through redemption in your son. Thank you, O oh God, for this picture, for this reminder. May it grow us in our conviction of what you are like and how we're to live for you. That we would love the things that you love, O oh God, that we would hate the things that you hate, that we would pursue after righteousness, that we would hate and name unrighteousness even in our prayers. Do that so that you would be glorified. Do that in our lives so that we could experience your goodness, your blessing, and your grace. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.